0: Good morning, church. Uh, Week one of Fierce. We're going to be exploring four stories of women in the Bible, and and we're going to find ourselves within these stories. And this morning, we're going to be telling the story of Esther. And we're going to shake things up a bit, okay? The story is remembered each year during the Jewish holiday of Purim. And they have a couple of traditions that they do whenever this story is told, Uh, Whenever the story is told, the storyteller has some audience participation, okay? Whenever the storyteller says the name Mordecai, the crowd just cheers, yells, hoots and hollers, etc. Then whenever the the storyteller says the name Haman, everyone boos, okay? Think like the boo scene from The Princess Bride, okay? Like boo, boo, just like that. He's the villain. In the story, Mordecai's the hero, and, and Haman's the villain. Now we're gonna we're gonna be Jewish this morning. <laughs> um, so everybody, look on your chair. You saw some noisemakers. We've got some hand clappers there. We've got some horns. Uh, we're gonna have some fun. So let's practice this real quick. Whenever I say the name Mordecai, Mordecai, okay, okay, that's good, that's good, okay, and then. Uh, whenever I say the word Haman, <laughs> boo. okay, I saw some of uh, the, the party, uh, you know, don't do that on, on Haman, okay, it's boo, it's boo. Now, you guys got this. Now, in this book, the book of Esther, there are lots of parties in this book, and so in many Jewish communities, when the story is told, the wine is flowing, and the goal is to get to the point where the crowd can't distinguish between Haman and Mordecai. We're not getting that Jewish today, okay, um... We're going to stick with the cheers and the booze, okay? You ready to go? All right, here we go. The year was 481 BC. The Jewish people had been removed from their homeland for 100 years. The Babylonians who destroyed their temple and took everything from them uh, have now been conquered by the Persians. And under the Persian rule, they're treated significantly better, but by no means were the Persians friends of the Jews, nor did they serve their God. The Persian capital is Susa, and there the Persian king would rule their empire. Xerxes was king, not just of Persia, but of the entire known world. And Xerxes was impulsive, narcissistic, and had more power than anyone on planet Earth. History tells us that he was such a violent, impulsive man that at one point, um, all of his ships got destroyed in a storm while they were at harbor. And he was so angry that he sent officials out to rebuke the storm in the sea and to whip it. Literally, he spanked and whipped the ocean for causing that. And then all the shipbuilders, he had them all hung. You don't mess with King Xerxes. Nobody crossed Xerxes, except his wife in chapter one. Um, His wife was a beautiful woman named Vashti. And... He was the envy of all the men of the empire. She was the envy of all the women of the empire. And like most men in power, Xerxes loved a good party. And so Xerxes throws this massive party. Uh, this party lasts 180 days. Yeah. Now, I didn't. Not yet, okay? Now, the Persian kings believed that when they were intoxicated at a large festival or party, that they would uh, the gods would then give them insights for strategic military victory. And so they would have these parties all the time. 180 days. Um, and after the 180-day party, the king decides the party wasn't quite long enough, so he throws another seven-day party. Yeah. You see, when the music stops, and the people are gone, and all that is left is confetti on the floor, and it's just you and your emotions and the person you've become, things can get lonely. That's terrifying. So the king throws this other party uh, to numb the pain and be told how great he is by everybody else. And at this party, the booze is really flowing. At this party, every official, over 100 of them, each got its, its own individual golden goblet Each golden goblet was different than all the others, and each just continued to flow. They just continued to drink. And on the last day of this party, Xerxes invites his queen, Queen Vashti, to come to the party so that he can show off his beautiful wife. Now, today in Islam, you see women with head coverings on. This began in ancient Persia. This tradition and so he asks his wife Vashti to come out and uncover herself not just her face but more than that so he can show off her beauty she refuses she was invited to be demeaned and disrobed in front of all these rich officials she was demanded by the king of the empire and she declines This sent Xerxes into a rage. Now, some of the king officials said, what must be done because of Queen Vashti's refusing of the king? You see, whenever there is someone in power, there are leeches whose own livelihoods uh, coincide with, with this person remaining in power. And so they'll do whatever it takes to keep the status quo. Memukhan, a high-ranking official of the king, says, what she has done is unforgivable. It's not only unforgivable here in the palace, but word's going to get out. And then all the women, all the wives of the empire are going to turn on their husbands. How insecure are these men? So he says, what must be done? And they said, first things first, banish Vasti. Get her out of here. Banish her. And he does. He banishes her from his presence, from his palace, and from the pages of history. Vashti, a pagan woman who dared to defy a disreputable king, is no more. But her courage and bravery live on in the hearts of so many women today. Right? Hashtag me too. The next thing to be done is to make sure that the women of the empire know who's boss. So they send out royal messengers proclaiming to all the empire that, hey, all wives must respect their husbands. And this pleased the king until he once again realized he was alone. Now, the king's officials, once again, got to keep their sugar daddy happy. So they propose another idea. They say, hey, let us get the most beautiful young virgins in the entire empire. We'll get them all together. Then we'll put them in a harem and we'll put the king's eunuch in charge of them. And then we'll do like a beauty pageant contest. Each of them gets one night with the king and whichever one you like best is going to be the new queen. And the king says, great, let's do that. Now, a eunuch who would be in charge of the king's harem is an important role in the ancient world. A eunuch is, how to put this in a PG setting, is a castrated male, okay? And by the way, we have some of our elementary school kids here today because this is a great story. You're going to like this, okay? Uh, The eunuchs are no threat to make advances on the queen right? Because their desire has been cut off. And, and so, so uh, it's a very important position. Now in, in the ancient world, there's only two people that could touch the queen, the king himself and the king's eunuch. That's it. Nobody else. If you touch the queen, you die. That proves to be very important in our story. So all the beautiful women of the empire are gathered together in the king's harem and each is given one night. Now, there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa who sat at the gates. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, and his name was Mordecai. Now, he had a cousin. He had a cousin whose name was Hadassah, which uh, is also Esther. And uh, he raised her. He raised her since she was a baby because her parents had died. So Esther was an orphan Jew. And the Bible says that she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. She was taken into the king's harem. But before she leaves, Mordecai tells her. He says, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why he tells her that, but she does it. She she remains that, she keeps that a secret, And so she enters the harem, and she immediately wins everybody over, all the other girls, uh, the king's eunuch loved her more than anybody else, and then it became time for her night with the king. And she was able to bring in whatever she wanted to this moment with the king. And she asks the king's eunuch, what should I bring? And she brings only what he recommends. Esther was more pleasing to the king than any other woman, and immediately a crown was placed on her head, And this orphan Jewish girl was queen of the Persian Empire. Xerxes, of course, threw another party. (laughs) All this time, Esther hid her Jewish identity. Now, uh, Esther's cousin, you're tracking with me, Esther's cousin was an official at the king's gate. And he overheard two of the guards talking to each other. Now, these guards had special access to the king that other people didn't. And Xerxes must have done something wrong to make these guards want to turn on him. So they start talking about this assassination plot. And Mordecai hears about it. He hears about it. He goes to Esther and he tells her about the the plan. And then Xerxes foils the plan and the two uh, guards are executed. All of this was then written down in the annals of the king. The annals of the king. And it's pronounced annals. (laughs) This too proves to be an interesting tidbit, a foreshadowing for what happens later on in the story. So after all these events, there's a new rising star in the palace of the king. This official is being promoted left and right by the King Xerxes, and this official's name, of course, is the vile Haman. (laughs) Now, we're not told why, but he gets the seat of honor next to Xerxes. But no doubt, the king saw something of himself inside Haman. Narcissistic, check. Yeah, there you go. I I missed that one, too. Impulsive, (laughs) powerful. Whenever this new official would enter the king's gates, all the king's officials would bow down in front of him. And one day while entering the king's gates with every knee bowed in honor to him, he notices someone's not honoring him and it is none other than Mordecai. So this bad guy walks in, everybody's bowing down, all except for our good guy. The Bible doesn't tell us why he didn't kneel. But his convictions are firm. Uh, Excuse you. You don't draw attention to yourself like this to the king's second in command. So, like his mentor Xerxes, this kind of disrespect would not be tolerated. And so, this evil bad guy named Haman, he he, threw him into a rage. He was enraged by this, and he, he became so set on this that he said, "I'm not just. I don't. I don't want you to kill the man." I don't want to kill just that Jewish man who won't kneel before me. I want to kill all the Jews. And so he goes up to the king and he says, Oh, king, I love thou. You know I got your back, right? Well, there's this people, this people group. They don't follow your customs. They don't follow your laws. In fact, they disobey all of them. And I think it'd be best. Let's kill them all. And the king says, and he goes, and even, even then, I will give you part of your treasury. I will send you money into the treasury if you just let me kill them all. And the king says, fine, it's great. Uh, they're bad, kill them all. So a royal edict was done and dispatchers were sent to all the provinces of the empire to annihilate the Jews on a certain day. This edict to annihilate the Jews came one day before Passover, which is ironic because Passover was the day they celebrate God's deliverance of the Jewish people. And here, an edict goes out throughout the empire to annihilate the Jewish people. Where was God now? Where was God now? And at this, the hero of our story rips his clothes and covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, and he begins to weep and mourn for his people. And his weeping and mourning is is heard throughout the palace gate. And so uh, word gets to Esther. And uh, Esther sends his eunuch, her eunuch, to to Mordecai to to ask, why are you so upset? Why are you weeping? Why are you covering yourself in sackcloth and ashes? And he tells her what is happening. He tells her about the annihilation of her own people. And so they begin to speak through this eunuch and sending messages back to each other. Uh, He tells her everything and begs her to go before the king to beg for mercy for her people. And she says, if I go before the king without being summoned, the penalty is death. The only way I'll survive, the only way I can go before the king without him asking for me. And he hasn't asked me for days, weeks. I haven't seen him. The only way, if I go before the king, is if he extends his golden scepter and I touch it. And and that's never happened in the ancient world. There is no other record in all of the ancient world, secular, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter, of anybody ever touching the golden scepter of a king. Uh, There's no record. And so the hero of our story responds with this famous line from the book of Esther Chapter 4, 13 and 14, it's on the screens. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's the most famous line in the book of Esther. For such a time as this. This is your moment, queen, This is why you're the queen. This is why you live in the palace. This is why you've been given influence, not for your own comfort, not for your own blessing, but for the blessing of others. You are queen for such a time as this. And Esther replies, gather all the Jewish people you can find. Gather them all together and fast for me for three days. You will fast for me and me and my attendants. We will do the same. Then I will enter into the king's chambers. And if I perish, I perish the second most famous line in Esther. If I perish, I perish. What courage, what bravery for such a time as this. This becomes the pivotal turning point in the story. In this moment, it's not about feasting, it's about fasting. And it becomes the turning point in the whole narrative. And after three days was over, it's time. I picture Esther staring into her mirror looking in the glass, hunched over, contemplating if this is the last time she's going to see herself or if this is the last few moments of her life. When the moment arrived, she rushes to the throne room. Palace guards all aside, everyone wondering what's going to happen. She deserves the death penalty. And right before she gets to the king, he extends the golden scepter, which she touches and it pleases the king. He says to her, Esther, my queen, whatever you want, I'm happy to see you. Whatever it is, even if it's half the kingdom, tell me and your wish will be granted. Then Esther, knowing how to speak the king's language, says, let me throw you a party. <laughs> and she goes, oh, 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 and invite Haman. Haman. And so that night at the party, the king says to her, uh, Esther, tell me what you want. You burst through my doors, my chambers. I extend mercy. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Now we're here at this party. What do you want? She thinks to herself, well, one party is probably not enough. So let the king and Haman come to another party tomorrow. Then I will tell you my request. Just builds anticipation. It's killing him, but he can't say no to another party. Now, Haman, he's ecstatic. There's only two people invited to the queen's party, him and the king. He is fired up. So he leaves dinner overjoyed. The, The Hebrew text here for this overjoyed expresses an intoxicating and deep joy. He is drunk on happiness because he's invited to the king's banquet with the queen only. Yet suddenly, his mood changes from ecstasy to anger. As he's leaving the gates, there's that Jew Mordecai. And this time, he doesn't even acknowledge his presence. Last time, he just didn't kneel. This time, our hero escalates the conflict and doesn't even acknowledge Haman. So our villain gets home and he vents to his wife who becomes a pivotal story in this uh, character in the story as well. And he vents to his wife and she sa- he says, honey, I'm, t- I'm telling you about my day. My day was great. Everything was amazing. The king and the queen meet a special banquet. The queen asked for me by name. And then they're throwing me another banquet tomorrow. I'm the only one invited. But none of that means anything if it wasn't for that Jew Mordecai. That guy blatantly disrespects me. That guy doesn't even acknowledge me. That guy's horrible. I can't wait to annihilate all of his people. And so the queen, or his wife, the bad guy's wife, says, okay, here's what you need to do. Build some gallows, okay? And then tomorrow morning when you go before the king, tell him and let's hang Mordecai on those gallows. Yeah. You feel weird cheering there, right? Felt a little bit weird cheering there. (laughs) So our villain goes to bed, resting, happy, content with a plan to destroy our hero and his people. And that very night, across the city of Susa, there... Remains a light on in the king's palace. And King Xerxes himself is tossing and turning. He's taking his NyQuil. He's taking his Advil PM. He's taking his Ambien. And nothing is working. He lies awake. So, being the narcissistic king that he is, he calls in some of his servants to read stories about himself. So he says, oh, Jeeves, oh, Jeeves, come here, please could you uh, grab that giant book over there and read to me from the annals of the king? Tell me about myself. Tell me how great I am. So the servant begins reading, and he reads the part of the annals where an official named Mordecai (laughs) discovers an assassination plot against the king. And, And he says, oh, gee, stop for a second. I don't know why he was British, Okay. Oh, Jeeves, stop for a second. Um, He wasn't British. But he says, was anything done for this person who foiled this assassination attempt? And Jeeves looks through, and he goes, no, nothing was done. And he goes, huh, okay. They wake up the next morning, and it is the day of reckoning. The day of reckoning. Haman wakes up feeling refreshed. He's feeling so great after a great night of sleep, dreaming of the death of his enemy, Esther's cousin. And he immediately is summoned by the king. And as he approaches the king, the king says these words. What should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman obviously thinks he's referring to himself, right? He says, what should the king do for the man who he wants to honor and he takes delight in? And so the villain says, well, this is what he should do. If I don't say, you know, if I do say so myself. You should uh, put the king's robes on him. Put him on the king's horse. Parade him through town. And say, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And he goes, that's a great idea. That's exactly what I'll do. Go get that Jew Mordecai and parade him around town. Now, it was illegal to frown in front of the Persian king. You could not show emotion. I would have loved to see the bad guy's face here, right? Because he has to keep it together. The one vile person that he hated more than any other, he wanted to destroy his entire people group. Now, he's going to be riding on the king's horse and Haman himself is going to be saying, this is what is done for the one who the king delights in right in front of him. What an ultimate reversal. His fortunes suddenly change. He finds himself bestowing honor on the one person who refused to bestow honor on him. So he parades his rival across the city and it is beyond awful for him. But at least he still has Esther's party later that night, right? At least he's got Esther's party. Yeah, he's excited about it. When he arrives, The king demands, Queen Esther, what is it you want? You you barred through my chambers. You throw me one party. You throw me a second party. I've been waiting all night and day. What do you want? If it's half the kingdom, whatever it is, it's yours. And then she says this. Queen Esther says, grant me my life and the life of my people. And the king immediately is thinking, who'd want to kill you? Who who wants to kill the queen? Because whoever he is, he's a dead man. And Esther then replies, it's that adversary, that vile Haman. (laughs) Haman spits out his drink, right? He spits out the wine and he doesn't understand what's happening. The king leaves the room in a rage. And the Bible says that he left so fast that he left his wine glass behind. You know he was in a hurry. You know he was angry if he does that. So Haman stays behind and he approaches Queen Esther and he begs her to spare his life. Just then, the king re enters the banquet hall because he forgot his wine and he sees. Haman with his hands on Esther's shoulders saying please save me save me save me but remember only two people can touch the queen the eunuch and the king himself so Xerxes walks in sees Haman's hands all upon his wife and he says will you molest the queen in my presence It says, the Bible says in that moment, they put a bag over his head, his story's written. They said, what should he do? What's what's his punishment? And the the king's official said, well, there's these new gallows that just got established. (laughs) And immediately, they put him on the gallows that he built for, wait for it, Mordecai. (laughs) Now, it's a great story. It's a great story. Uh, chapters, you know, I encourage you to read chapters 8, 9, and 10 on your own time this week. But I want to invite knowing the worship band up. And I, and I really want the story to just speak for itself, right? You guys are right. Um, but just a couple of thoughts. Esther is the only book in the entire Bible where God isn't mentioned one time. Not once. There's no mention of God, him, the big guy upstairs, nothing. He's inconspicuously silent. Yet, as you heard the story, could you not see God's hand at work in delivering his people? We're no longer telling the story, so you don't have to cheer. But Mordecai raising his cousin... Esther keeping her identity quiet until the perfect moment. The favor that Esther receives from the harem and then from the king himself. The sleepless night of the king that led to the honoring of Mordecai. And then, of course, the building of the gallows of Haman, which would eventually be his own death. There is plenty of irony in this story, yet God is absent and silent. Does anybody need to know that God is still in control when he's silent? God is still in control in the midst of uh, narcissistic, mean, powerful people in our lives. God is still in control. God's in control when, and he can still move in the midst of impulsive, mean people, mean realities. Do you think that the Jewish people of the 1930s and 40s found hope in this book? An evil, narcissistic person wants to annihilate their whole race? You think the Jewish people found hope in God's actions in the middle of the book of Esther nearly 100 years ago? The whole plan is foiled by a Jewish orphan. Let's carry this story into your story. Has God placed you in your place of employment for such a time as this? Has God placed you in your family for such a time as this? Has God placed you in your city for such a time as this? Has God placed you in this church right now, nearing 11 a.m., Sunday the 22nd? Has God placed you here in that chair for such a time as this? God, I pray in Jesus' name that we rise up we rise up in the middle of fear, that, that fear would fall by the wayside, that we would know that you're in control. We trust you, Jesus. We ask for your help. God, give us the boldness that you gave Esther. God, give us the faithfulness that Mordecai showed his family when he raised his orphan cousin, and give us the faithfulness that Mordecai showed to you when he refused to bow to anybody else. God, we want that kind of faith. Father, we love you. God, I thank you that you are the best artist, that you make beautiful things out of all kinds of messes that we make for ourselves. That God, that whatever mess we find ourselves in, whatever failures we have, whatever shortcomings that we have, God, you can still do something good and beautiful. It's not you causing it, but you're good enough, you're strong enough, you're powerful enough to make beautiful things. Out of the negative things, out of the bad things in our life. And so God, we pray that you do that this morning. Do that in this place, in our situations, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we declare that God can make beautiful things out of you and I?